You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, all right, folks. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. We lost a, a patriot, one of the best war correspondents ever, last week, and he was my friend. His name is Joe Galloway. His idol was the famous journalist from World War II, Ernie Pyle. I want to read you a quote by Ernie Powell talking about his beloved soldiers over in Europe. He said, and I quote, Their life consists wholly and solely of war, for they were and always had been frontline infantrymen. They survived because the fates were so kind to them, certainly, but also because they had become hard and immensely wise in animal-like behaviors for self-preservation, unquote. You know, the common soldier loved Ernie Powell. He told their stories in a down-to-earth style that made the foot soldier feel like someone cared. And they knew that Ernie Powell was a war correspondent who understood what the label infantrymen really applied. Three weeks before the Japanese savage of the 7th Fleet Pearl Harbor, a male child came to this world in Bryan, Texas, a couple miles north of College Station, where his father was attending Texas A&M. He grew up in a small town called Refugio, about 30 miles north of Corpus Christi. Bitten by the journalist and bug at a young age, the boy idolized Ernie Powell. He said, I just wanted to be like Ernie. His dream became a violent reality near the Chupong Hills at a place called the Idrain Valley in the Central Highlands of Vietnam. In, a, in the first major engagement, pitting the North Vietnamese Army against American troopers, Joseph Lee Galloway flew into war in history, earning him recognition as the Ernie Powell of Vietnam. Let me tell you this man's incredible story. Mid-November, 1965 in the Idrain Valley. The lead F-100 Super Sabre released two napalm canisters, but in the wrong direction. The deadly canisters floated idly toward the American lines, as in slow motion. If the second F-100 released his two canisters, the troopers and battalion HQ hunkered down behind a large termite mound would have been scorched beyond recognition. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, saw the horror unfolding. He hauled at the top of his lungs at Charles Hastings, the U.S. Air Force ground forward air controller. Call that son of a bitch off. Call him off. Hastings yelled into his radio, pull up, pull up. The second F-100 did pull up, but the first fighter jets canister tumbled straight toward PFC Jimmy Nakayama and Spec 5 James Clark. Within seconds, the jelly gasoline ignited the two soldiers. Excerpts from We Were Soldiers Once and Young by Lieutenant General Hal Moore and award-winning war correspondent Joe Galloway. Galloway wrote, Nakayama was all black and Clark was all burned and bleeding. Before I had walked over and talked to the engineering men in their little foxholes. Now those same men were dancing in the fire. 
their hair burnt off in an instant. Their clothes were incinerated. One was a mass of blisters, the other not quite so bad that he had breathed fire into his lungs. Somebody yelled at me to grab the feet of one of the charged soldiers. When I got them, the boots crumbled and the flesh came off and I could feel the bare bones of his ankles in the palms of my hands. We carried him to the aid station. I can still hear their screams. One medic lost his life giving aid. Another medic put morphine into DFC Nakajima, Nakayama and inspect five Clark. It did not stop the pain. Clark survived. Nakayama died two days later on the same day his wife gave birth to their first child. And the battle of the Idrain Valley had just begun. To understand from an early age your true purpose on God's green earth is a godsend. Joe Galloway is one of those fortunate few. He was one of those lucky kids. Joe grew up idolizing World War II Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Ernie Powell. As an aspiring young journalist, Galloway could not have chosen a better war correspondent to admire than Ernie Powell. His admiration for the most respected journalist during World War II would serve Joe well during his journey as a war correspondent. Look, Joe wouldn't mean it, nor accept the tribute. But Vietnam veterans considered Joe Calloway the Ernie Powell of our generation. I received an email from Colonel Frank Franklin, Mark Franklin, history and legend chief for the Vietnam War's commemoration. Colonel Franklin invited me to sign up for an interview at the Atlanta History Center to tell my story of my service in Vietnam. No way. I, you know, my, my first reaction was, no, I don't want to do this. Until I read the email further to find out the man conducting the interview would be none other than Joe Galloway. Having admired Joe's writing and courage, and ever since reading his bestseller, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, I said, no way, Jose, am I going to refuse. I was going to turn, I was not going to turn down this opportunity to meet such a legend. And I admit my real purpose for agreeing to tell my story was to somehow con, plead, and sweet talk. I was going to cry in public if I had to to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime chance to obtain my own interview with Joe Galloway. As we shook hands before the interview, I noticed Joe and I shared the same height and about the same weight. Yet, having gained no height from since Vietnam, we both sure as hell put on a couple extra pounds since the war. Yeah, we were soldiers once and young, but unlike yours truly, Joe Galloway still sported a beautiful crop of hair. I felt absolutely at ease with Joe, as if we had shared the same battlefields. Perhaps we did. He fired questions in my directions for almost an hour before we switched interview hats. I had Joe's attention for 20 minutes before his next appointment. Too short of a time to interview a war correspondent whose life meets all the requirements for an AMC miniseries. Yet his limited remarks spoke volumes on the price of freedom, sitting on the siege of Play Me Special Forces Camp, which was the precursor to the Idrain Valley. 
When asked how many wars he covered as a war correspondent, Joe's reply was modest, yet honest. He said, I don't even know. A brief synopsis. A synopsis. Shortly after the first U.S. Marines landed at China Beach, Joe began a 16-month tour in Vietnam starting in April of 1965. He completed two more tours in 1971 and 1973, plus squeezed in coverage of the 1971 Pakistan-India War. He returned to Southeast Asia in 1975 to register the fall of Cambodia and South Vietnam. He reported on six other regional conflicts and later hooked up with the Army's 24th Mechanized Infantry Division during the Gulf War to participate in their tank charge across the desert of western Iraq. Now, this is his own words. I was 23 years old when I first began my first of four tours in Vietnam, 1965-66, to 1971-73, and I was there for the end of it in 1975. I didn't come home for 16 years. My assignments included the news bureaus in Tokyo and Saigon, then serving as chief of bureau in Jakarta, New, uh, Jakarta, New Delhi, Singapore, Moscow when the Soviet Union was still intact, and finally Los Angeles. And he said Los Angeles is basically a foreign country too. He said, I like World War II cartoonist Bill Malden, but I like World War II correspondent Ernie Powell. I visited Ernie's grave at the Punch Bowl in Honolulu. A year or so ago, I received a recently discovered photo of Ernie that was taken right after his death when he was killed on Leshima. Ernie was lying there with probably the first look of peace on his face in four years of war. It just broke my heart. Galloway took a quick break and wept. Then he came back and said, Ernie Powell was my inspiration. And if my generation had to go to war, I was going to cover it. Perhaps in doing so, it is easier 50 years later to explain why you went to war instead of why you stayed at home. I was working for UPI in Topeka, Kansas, covering the legislature, state politics, and murder trials. The year was 1963. I wrote my boss's letter every week, begging, pleading, demanding for a transfer to Southeast Asia, to Vietnam. We were going to have a war there, my generation's war, and I wanted to cover it. Truthfully, I raised hell with my bosses. He said, then after 1964 election, when we elected Glendon Johnson as president, and he promised that American boys would never be sent to do for Vietnamese boys what they ought to be doing for their own country. He said, well, I knew Lyndon Johnson because I came from South Texas, and I knew he was lying. We were going to have a war, and I was going to be there. UPI eventually called and transferred me to Tokyo. A little over four months later, I landed in Saigon right after the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, landed in Da Nang. I spent two days in Saigon, got a press pass, then up with Marines for seven months. October 1965, the Play Me Special Forces Camp in the Central Highlands. 
Galloway joins the fight. He said the North Vietnamese who had come down the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, the same ones we eventually fought in the Idrang Valley, had surrounded this special forces camp to bait the South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese Army, the Arvin, to come up this road and play coup as a relief column. Their idea was to ambush a relief column, then overrun the camp. There was a regiment of the bastards out there surrounding the camp and another regiment lying in ambush. I wanted to get there, but the airspace was closed. They'd already lost two Hueys, two Air Force B-57 Canberra bombers, and an A-1E Sky Raider. I'm stomping around the flight line at Play Coup trying to find a ride when I meet a good old buddy from Texas, Captain Ray Burns from Granado, Texas. He said, what's the matter, Joe? You look upset. I told him I was looking for a ride to play me. He said, shoot, that airspace is closed. But if you want to get there, man, hop on. I'll give you a ride. So we flew to play me. Folks, I'll be right back. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back. We got uh, war correspondent Joe Galloway, a good buddy of mine who we just lost, but he's flying into the Special Forces camp at Play Me. He said, I have a photo taken from the chopper as it laid on its side to spiral in. The camp was triangular. I could see exploding mortar rounds, and I thought, Jesus, that's where we're going? As soon as we landed, I jumped off the Huey. They started tossing in wounded mountain yards, then Ray, my buddy, lifts off, smiling at me and shooting me, well, you know, his longest finger. The Special Forces Camp Master Sergeant ran up to me and said, Sir, I don't know who the hell you are, but Major Beckwith wants to see you right away. I asked who that was, and he answered, That big fella over there jumping up and down on his hat. And I was thinking, This ain't good. So I went over to Beckwith, who immediately demanded, who in the hell are you? I replied that I was a reporter. Beckwith was furious. I need everything in the damn world. Medevac, food, ammo, and what has the Army sent me in its infinite wisdom? A God-forsaken reporter. I have news for you, son. I have no vacancy for a reporter. 
but I'm in desperate need of a corner machine gunner, and you are it. And I thought, this ain't too good either. I was given 10 minutes of instruction on how to care for and feed a 30 caliber machine gun. I stayed on the wall for three days and two nights until the relief column finally fought its way into the camp. By the way, Major Charles Beckwith would best be remembered as the creator of the premier counterterrorism unit, the Delta Force. But Galloway continued. The 7th Cav finally relieved us. I recall Beckwith saying, you did a good job on that machine gun, son. How'd you like to come with me on a recon mission? And ask where to? Beckwith pointed west and said, over yonder. Well, over yonder was Cambodia. So I asked, how long will we stay? And he replied, oh, a couple of weeks. I thought for a moment and said, Major, I'd love to go, but I'll probably be fired for being stuck in the camp for three days, and I'm out of touch with my office in Saigon. Put it this way, I didn't go to Cambodia. Galloway hooked up with the 7th Cavalry. For the next few days, then-Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore and his 7th Cav Troopers, with renowned Sergeant Major Basil Plummy, ran an operation in the hills east of Play Me. Galloway said, that was pretty much a walk in the sun, or better yet, a slow crawl in the jungle. We humped all day, forward a mountain river right before dark, got soaking wet, made camp and dug a hole, wrapping ourselves in our ponchos, and almost froze to death. I have never been colder than at 4,000 feet in those mountains in Vietnam. Next, the next morning, I'm hankering for some hot coffee. So I'm in my hole cooking up a can of water to pour dry coffee into it. But I look up, and I see boots at the edge of my hole, four of them. The boots were worn by Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore and Sergeant Major Plumley. That's another one of those... This ain't good situations. Hal Moore said, son, I have to tell you, in my battalion, we all shave in the morning, and that includes odd reporters. I looked at my hot water. Moore still gawking at it. So he said, I repurposed that canteen cup of hot water. That was my first face-to-face meeting with Hal Moore. Now let's move to Sunday, November 14th in Idrain Valley. Galloway said, it's the first day, first lift of the big battle. I had my first look at landing zone, zone X-ray, LZ X-ray. That's the Idrain uh, Valley base camp. About an hour after the 7th Cavalry landed, I was riding with uh, Brigadier Commander Lieutenant Colonel Brown. LZ X-ray was easy to spot. The smoke was 5,000 feet in the air. We circled the area where Brown and Moore argued. Brown wanted to land, but Moore kept saying if we did land with all those antennas on the command chopper, we'd be walking home, that the NVA would shoot us up. While they were arguing, the Air Force A-1E Skyraider engulfed in flames passed under our chopper and crashes into the jungle. Everybody yells, did you see a shoot? Did you see a shoot? It took place on my side of the chopper, and I'm on the net saying, no shoot, no shoot. He went in with the plane. I later found out his name was Captain Paul McClellan, Jr. I know where he is. 
MIA POW organization called his wife about 15 years ago. They said they could get to the crash site to do a dig, maybe uncover his remains. She said no. That her husband loved what he did and died in a battle that has gone down in history and to let him rest in peace. She stated her four kids were helped through college by the United States Air Force. She was at peace, too. Galloway's final thoughts and comments on the Idrani Valley. The survivors of the Idrani Valley, the men of the 1st Battalion, 7th Cap, will be my friends for life. I saw them fight and die beside each other, for each other. I heard the command, fix bayonets, and I saw those bayonets used on human beings. I had men killed on my left and right, and I figured every man who died there, every man who was wounded there, were casualties that saved my life. You know, the Hollywood version of the Idrain Valley depicts uh, Galloway being handed an M-16, then told to defend yourself. Joe said, well, that's not true. That's just Hollywood. He said, I carried one in. Smiley also stated, I brought my own. Joe Galloway was always heavily armed. American losses at LZ X-ray and surrounding support bases, 308. NVA losses, around 1,700 soldiers and an unknown number of wounded. In the battle, American artillery, artillery alone fired more than 18,000 rounds in 53 straight hours of support for Hal Moore and his courageous soldiers. From the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, page 200. As they left the Idrain Valley, Moore and Galloway came face to face. Joe said, we stood and looked at each other and suddenly without shame, the tears were running tracks through the dirt on our faces. Moore choked out these words. Joe, go tell the Americans what these brave men did. Tell them how their sons died. Joe Galloway filmed and fought and penned the account of the Idrain Valley. Impressed by his deeds, UPI raised Joe Galloway, Galloway's salary from $135 to $150 a week. You know, I had the honor to interview a legend, the man called Galloway. But behind the legend, I discovered a real human being. Quick to joke, yet quick to shed an open tear, recalling the memories of the heroes that still haunt his soul. We lost Joe last week on August 18th. God be with you, Joe. A job well done, sir. The unstoppable journalist, Joe Galloway. Folks, I'm to uh, make a few comments on Afghanistan. I know that's all on our minds. I know that we are watching the tragedies unfold on TV, and I'm going to give you my thoughts as a Vietnam veteran. I remember like it was yesterday, April 30th, 1975. I was smacking on a stick of pepperoni when a special news alert interrupted TV program. I remember watching North Vietnamese tanks crush the gates to the presidential palace in Saigon as a young NVA tanker dismounted 
and sprinted toward the palace with a North Vietnamese flag in his hand. I remember the emptiness I felt in my gut, a sickness of source, facing the realization that the war was finally over. I remember thinking, what a waste. All the boys we lost, trying to prevent exactly what I'm watching. I remember Doug Rays and Walter Singleton, just two of my buddies from Bartlett High School who paid the ultimate price for their country. Or maybe their sacrifice was for Vietnam. Or perhaps they died for freedom. But the fact is, they died. The reason Doug and Walter died is still being debated by historians, money morning quarterbacks, and armchair generals. But the fact is, there are too many reasons, yet no good reasons at all. I spent 30 months in that war, the John Wayne optimist when my boots first hit Southeast Asian soil, only to become a victim of a progressive sense of hopelessness and a, as a seasoned intelligence operative who bitterly absorbed the knowledge of how not to fight a war. I was involved for 18 months interdicting the Ho Chi Minh Trail. All the pilots, air crews, air rescue jumpers, all the air commandos and special forces personnel we lost in Laos, they weren't there. Their families and loved ones back home were told their heroes had died in Vietnam. Because, you see, they weren't there. We weren't fighting and dying in Laos because that country was neutral. The American government and North Vietnamese family stated to the world that the neutrality of Laos was being observed as we kept killing each other around Chiffon, the Mugia Pass, or the prehistoric megalith archaeological landscape called the Plain of Jars. No, we weren't there. Yet the unrecovered still are there. So we came home. Some of us in uniform. Many of us told not to wear uniforms in public due to the anti-war moods on our city streets and college campuses. We who survived tolerated the intolerable as we became the targets and scapegoats for failed politics. Yeah, we kept quiet. We let our hair grow, slid on bell-bottom pants or a pair of ratty jeans. We tried to fit in. As time wore on, we morphed in public opinion from being baby killers into heroes. Far too late for the non-vets who died from Agent Orange or by their own hand. Broken marriages, broken hearts, broken spirits, all packed into a compact, neat, naive promise of never again. I'll be right back, folks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy 
or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, I'm back with you. You know, 46 years after North Vietnamese tanks crushed the gates to a presidential palace, TVs across America are flashing special news alerts of victorious Taliban fighters in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. Afghanistan driving around in pickup trucks and newly acquired American Humvees. Against the sound advice of the military joint chiefs of staff, seasoned advisors, and diplomatic veterans of Afghanistan, Joe Biden ordered the most reckless withdrawal of American military personnel in our nation's history. Revenge via the Taliban will be horrendously unpleasant for the Afghans. Blame, I'm sure, will be tossed in Trump's lap or in the faces of our military or different political parties. But blame means little to Gold Star families or triple amputee. Now more than ever, show the respect and appreciation these young warriors and their families have earned. They not only deserve it, they will need it. Never again, but it did happen again. Folks, I realize that you have kids to raise and bills to pay. I also realize you watch the COVID clowns and their COVID confusing news conferences every day and their baffling expert opinions influence your most important decisions. You are exhausted, frustrated, out of patience, angry, you feel defenseless and no longer retain any confidence in the federal government. More than half of your fellow Americans suffer the same affliction, and if the other half doesn't, they soon will. Your president, in my opinion, is a bona fide space cadet. The vice president is irresponsible, avoids responsibilities, and goes into hiding when faced with important decisions. She doesn't have what it takes to lead a troop of Girl Scouts due to her radical political beliefs, much less be trusted with a nuclear arsenal. Behind Harris lurks Nancy Pelosi, who may ask the Clintons for a quick riddance of Harris so she can achieve the position she's been positioning for her entire political life. You're inundated with critical race theory, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, riots, looting, shootings, inflation, and desperation. It seems strange to you that the country is infected with a virus that's smart enough to know the difference between a church and Walmart. You're torn between wearing a mask or having the ability to breathe properly. You didn't get the vaccine since you don't trust the side effects. Your friends who received the vaccine are now debating if they need the booster vaccine or, like you, are burned out on conflicting recommendations. Our nation is on a nonstop Ferris wheel. You want to get off the ride, but the control operator is gone. 
he's camped out by the corn uh, corn dog booth attempting to seduce your 15-year-old daughter who's not even on birth control. Now, you ask, how can things get worse? Pay attention, I'll tell you. Afghanistan is a fiasco. The American pullout was inadequately planned unless a more efficient plan was vetoed by a president the entire world now considers to be a fiasco unto himself. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS now have an entire country in which to patiently scheme against what they consider to be a satanic United States of America. What would be their best way to strike back? Our southern border is wide open. Among ill leaders crossing the border for freedom and are your tax-funded benefits are also thugs, gang members, narcotics, weapons, and known terrorists. With the border undefended and our border personnel under orders not to enforce existing laws, it's basically a cakewalk to walk into the United States of America. Plus, remember this, it only takes one terrorist cell to make it through. To be blunt, whichever American-hating terrorist group decides the time is right for another headline-catching attack on our country, well, right now, there is very little we can do about it. Our intelligence community is well aware of the threat, but the threat can only be confronted if the president listens and then responds. In other words, Biden had better pay attention. Don't count on it. Folks, Afghanistan aside, it's time for all of us to face the fact that Joe Biden is not physically nor mentally able to carry out the grueling responsibilities of the President of the United States. He walked away, actually shuffled away at a speedy pace from three critically important press conferences without taking questions from a frustrated press corps. You may hate or love Donald Trump, but he had the combativeness and guts to stand behind the podium and take the press corps' best shots, and then he fired back with his best shots. That's what a leader does. You know, Trump may have been crude and sometimes rude, and perhaps he was a Twitterholic. But Trump, to my knowledge, never backed down. He listened. He learned. He made decisions based more on common sense than his concern for bad votes by bad people misled by bad decisions. All right, let's go ahead and play Monday morning quarterback. Let's all squeeze into a time machine and travel back a few weeks to make a choice. We can choose Biden or Trump to execute an evacuation plan for Afghanistan. Yeah, I know that. That's really playing Monday morning quarterback, right? No, it is not. Obama boarded Air Force One and flew to a political rally as we lost an American ambassador and American warriors in Benghazi. Biden stayed on vacation and avoided answering questions from the press until it was no longer feasible for him to remain hidden in his Delaware bunker for his basement or wherever the hell he was while Afghanistan fell into a haven for world terrorism. The other day, a 
CIA head honcho met secretly with the Taliban to hopefully negotiate a new deadline for the evacuation of Allied and American citizens. The Taliban has stated in no uncertain terms, no. Folks, at this stage in our history, when America negotiates, it really means begging. Biden asked OPEC to produce more oil for us. OPEC said no. Our troops land in Kabul with the gung-ho expectations of rescuing Americans. They were told no. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, the State Department, have heard the desperate pleas for assistance from our border security, pleas not only for the authority to enforce our laws, but pleas to help solve a human tragedy as well as the tragedy of the drug cartels controlling events. The code silence from the White House can only be interpreted as unsympathetic no. Small children often rebel against the word no. God help us when adult American citizens finally decide to rebel against the tyranny of negativism, against losing our face worldwide, against administration unwilling and unable to do what's right. May the good Lord bless America when we finally stand up and say no. Folks, uh, Monday night, I participated in a Zoom meeting with Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan war veterans. Uh, naturally, there were comparisons between the fall of Saigon and the fall of Afghanistan. Some of the comparisons were spot on. Some were not. Since both, evacu- va- excuse me, since both evacuations were unique due to the countries and warring parties involved. But Monday night, we old warriors of Vietnam listened to the young men and women warriors of Afghanistan. We not only felt, but we understood their pain. One officer of Vietnamese lineage who served in Afghanistan was on the verge of tears. His parents had fled Vietnam. He was, of course, now an American citizen and serving his country as an officer in the United States Army. I can understand why he wanted to cry. Folks, only a boots-on-the-ground veteran of Southeast Asia who endeared that failure can relate to a veteran who had boots in the mountainous snow of Afghanistan or boots in the sands of Iraq. If it had been possible Monday night, we non-vets would have reached through our laptop screens to hold their hands or give these kids a much-needed hug. They are hurting. They are disappointed, confused, and realizing for the first time that all wars are political. They understand that the military does not start wars. It's the politicians that start wars but they are coming to grips with the reality that it is the soldiers who fight and bleed and die until the politicians decide who wins and who loses. I've studied communism all my life, 
I've read Marx and Engels, and I have read and reread the Little Red Book by Chinese revolutionary and the eventual chairman of the Communist uh, Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong. What our veterans of Afghanistan are experiencing was revealed in Mao Zedong's speech on protected war in 1939. And I quote, and listen carefully, when politics develop to a certain stage beyond which they cannot proceed by the usual means, a war breaks out to sweep away the obstacle. If the obstacle is swept away, then the war will discontinue. If the obstacle is not swept away, then the war must continue. Therefore, it can be said that politics is war without bloodshed and that war is politics with bloodshed. Mousy Tongue from his speech on protracted war, 1939. It is indeed a bitter pill for a warrior to swallow when he or she realizes they are nothing but political pawns in a never-ending cycle of wars between politicians. I've listened to many well-informed world leaders, our military's sharpest minds, and realistic political scientists who strongly believe that Afghanistan has hastened our decline as a world leader and world power. Their blunt forecast was not just based on the Afghanistan debacle, but on the cold, hard truth that the Marcus, excuse me, the Marcus communist movement we are all experiencing on the home front may actually come to governing realization. In which case, a peaceful counter-revolution will naturally occur. It's a natural course of events. The real nightmare behind a peaceful counter-revolution was best stated by President John Kennedy. And I quote, Those who make a peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. Our revolution against England was said to start with a shot heard around the world. God help us, and God be with us, if a second shot is ever needed. We come back from the break, folks. I'm going to tell you about my next week's guest. His name is Jack Barsky. He's a former KGB agent for the Soviet Union. I'll be right back. Pete, before we, uh, before we take our break, Pete, I want uh, to say I appreciate and support your opinions particularly about our president that's no leader at all, nor is our vice president. And we endorse your views as a radio station, and we're working every way that we can to try and wake people up to the force that we have in Washington, D.C. right now. And a change is needed. We need a president, a leader, and, again... I'm David Moxley. I own America's Web Radio, and I totally throw my support and endorsement behind Pete Mecca and the words that he's given us today. We'll be back right after a couple of spots. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, I'm back with you. Please join me next week. Uh, Jack Barsh is going to be with me. Jack was from East Germany. He was trained as a Russian spy, a KGB agent. He did infiltrate into America. He was spying on our country for the Soviet Union. And somewhere along the line, he said, whoa, wait a minute here. I'm on the wrong side. You're going to hear a fascinating story. But when I talked to Jack, I think it was Monday afternoon, he told me, Pete, I'll be glad to talk about being trained as a KGB agent. Uh, I'll be glad to talk about working for the Soviet Union, what they trained me to do, how I was going to spy on America, how I did spy on America. But in my transition, I'll be glad to talk about that. But what I want to talk Tackle, uh, tackle, and I'll talk about the most is what's going on right now in our country. I grew up under communism. I know what it's like. I know how it operates, and I am scared to death. It's going to be one heck of a show. He's so upset that he wrote a letter recently to President Biden. Now, keep in mind, this is a letter from a former KGB agent, a Soviet spy, and someone who infiltrated America to spy on us and feed the information back to undermine the United States of America, which he finally defected to. I'm going to paraphrase this. Jack Barsky wrote, Dear Mr. President, I am a native German who was recruited and trained in Moscow by the KGB. In 1978, I entered the United States as an undercover illegal agent. Ten years later, I resigned from the KGB, and that's a story in itself, and subsequently cooperated with the FBI. Five years ago, I became a U.S. citizen. Given that background, I know more about Russia, her people, and her secret services than most of your advisors. As such, I feel qualified to give you some brief advice with regards on how to treat Vladimir Putin. 
I would like to build a foundation out of known important historical facts. Russia has close to half the nuclear weapons on the planet. Russia is a paranoid nation. Since its founding about a thousand years ago, thousand years ago, she has been under constant siege from the north, south, east, and west. Paranoia is part of the Russian DNA. The United States and Russia have completely different world views. The lack of insight into the world view on the other side has been the source of misunderstandings and conflicts between our country and Russia, the Soviet Union, for more than a century. He said this about Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is arguably the most clever and successful politician in the last 100 years. This man is not to be taken lightly. If Vladimir Putin hates anything, it's attack on his persona. His eventual disposition has induced many a powerful opponent of his to flee the country in fear for their lives. If you remember, in a recent interview with George Stephanopoulos, Biden told the interviewer he believes that uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't have a soul. He also stated that he believed that Vladimir Putin was a murderer. Well, I guess you can say that for votes or say that to look tough, but then you have to go meet this man face-to-face. And Vladimir Putin, as most communists in other nations, like China, like North Korea, they will hold a grudge. They do not like to be insulted, nor, nor should we. If you recall, the Chinese just came recently to our own turf. They met with our State Department officials from the Biden administration in Alaska. The Chinese raked our delegation over the coals about our human rights violations. We didn't even give them a rebuttal. We sort of sucked it up and said, oh, we're sorry. I do not think that any delegation from the Trump administration would have sucked it up. They probably told the Chinese, get on your damn airplane and go home. We need that kind of leadership right now. Jack Barsky also told me this. The entire world has no interest in destabilizing Russia. Neither the Putin gang nor his predecessors are or were, were, were suicidal. If Putin loses his trite grip on a country, it is quite possible that enough nuclear weapons to destroy the earth will fall into the hands of suicidal maniacs. That's pretty scary. I find it more interesting that a KGB agent, a former spy for the Soviet Union, can come to this country, realize how good we have it here, like all the other people who come to this country for benefits, for our freedom, whatever it is, they come to our country 
they don't try to sneak into Russia. They don't try to sneak into Iran or communist China, Venezuela. They try, or North Korea for that matter. They sneak into America. If America's so damn bad, why are they sneaking in here instead of somewhere else? A former Soviet spy is scared to death. He said what's going on right now in the United States of America is very, very dangerous. He does not even know, with all his training, with all his knowledge of communism and the Marxist movement, and he's an expert at it, he doesn't know if it can be reversed. That's scary, folks. I'm going to be very, very interested to see his comments next week. He also said to President Biden in his letter, Mr. President, your disparaging comments about Vladimir Putin inject an unnecessary element of danger with the potential of escalating tensions into the relationship between our respective countries. By doing that, you're playing with the future of our country. Not mine or your future. We are both too far along away from discovering what God will have for us in eternity. I am talking about future of my children, your grandchildren, as well as the billions of young people all over the world who will be faced with what may happen in this country. With all due respect, Mr. President, you were not elected to do that. I beseech you to analyze and revise your approach to Russia and Putin and develop a Biden doctrine that is firm, reasonable, civil, and consistent. I haven't seen much of that lately, folks. Have you? I think that this country is in extreme danger. I believe you believe it too. As an intelligence operative and having been trained in Denver in the intelligence community when I was in the military, I saw this coming. I mean, I think any intelligence analysis did. The CIA pulled out of Afghanistan over two or three weeks ago. They knew what was coming. A Boy Scout could analyze what was coming when you pull out in the middle of the night and run with your tail tucked between your legs. You desert your ally and then all of a sudden realize, oh, we left Americans over there. Oh, we left thousands of people who helped us all these years. And you have to think about the women in Afghanistan. God help them. The ladies in, I said Pakistan, ladies in Afghanistan are extremely intelligent. When they are schooled, they go on to become leaders and scientists. Uh, there's one group of young ladies in Afghanistan. They produced and built their own uh, uh, apparatus to help during the coronavirus. All, all these beautiful people that we're deserting, they deserve better than this. Our military deserves better 
than this. Our allies deserve better than this. I, I, I am still so baffled and disappointed and angry to hear our president get on the radio and say that he has the backing of all the allies. He does not. If the truth be known, he may have the backing of some high-ranking generals that are approaching retirement and going on to the military-industrial complex to make their fortunes. But the lower echelons, the captains and majors, the lieutenant colonels, they're hurting too, folks. They know, they know that we have left people on the field. They have left people behind. We don't do that. The government may. They always have. But the United States military does not. God bless our troops still over there. Although they're being pulled out early, did you know that? They're being pulled out. As, F as the Taliban closes in, that's not what we do. Folks, I, I, I rambled a little bit, but I, I think you realize I'm as disgusted and disappointed as you are. Thank you for listening to me today. It's been my honor. God bless, and join me next week. See you then. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.